Good morning, village. Hey, try it one more time. Good morning, village. (laughs) Hey, there we go. We're awake now. All right, all right. All right. Um, My name's Jay. I've been attending the village for a short time, but nonetheless, it's home and and you guys are family. So thank you for coming today. Uh, Today's scripture is from Psalm 133. How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. Amen? Amen. (laughs) It is like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard into his robes. Amen? Good. (laughs) There we go. You smile in the crowd. All right. It is like dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. For the Lord has appointed the blessing Life forevermore. That is God's word. Thank you. There we go. There's an name. Thank you, Jay. He's not going to let you just sit there and look at him. <laughs> He's going to get you going. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> One other thing we could add to the, uh, the fall launch is another B, which is, we had barbecue, we had baptism, we had something else on there. Bingo, and you could add bounce house to it too for you kids, all right? We'll pack more in there, we'll figure out. All right, we are on a journey with the pilgrims of Israel as we have made our way through the Psalms of Ascent. And today, man, what a sight to see coming out of Psalm 133. Have you ever taken a long road trip? I've had many, many long road trips. I commute, I love to go on road trips just for the heck of it. Uh, I've driven, my family drove from uh, California, from the Bay Area to Houston when I was a teenager, when we made a move out there. Very, very long trip. And on those trips, you typically track the time, you make notes of the waypoints. Have we made it to such and such town or such and such city? Have we passed... Uh, that one roadside stop that we always make, you look for the signs to tell you how much further do you have to go before you get to your destination. Or maybe nowadays you you, you take a look at that navigation system, right? And you you watch it like uh, like you're watching water boil, (laughs) waiting. It's only been one mile? Oh my goodness, felt like a lifetime. If you ever uh, drive uh, I-5 down to Bakersfield, long stretches of nothingness. And it can feel like an eternity. But something happens, it's something that I took note of, at least in my journeys and trips. Something happens around 20 to 30 minutes before you get to your destination. You look down and you see, oh, we're almost there. And you begin to think of, hey, what, am I, what do I need to get out of the car? What am I gonna do when I first meet that person that I'm going to see? Uh, where, or maybe that place that I'm going uh, to, to uh, vacation at. Uh, your thoughts begin to move forward in time to what it might be like when you get to that point in time, to the, the fulfillment of your journey. Our singing pilgrims that we have been following through the Psalms of Ascent have all traveled some way, somewhere to get to Jerusalem. Some have traveled only a short walk. If you were a part of the families of the tribe of Asher, you would have traveled over 100 miles to get to Jerusalem. Imagine as your journey comes to an end 
and the mountain of Zion is before you. Jerusalem comes into sight. The families from the 12 tribes of Israel are pouring into the city and they're eager to find rest from their long journey as well as eager to celebrate the Lord with whatever festival they've come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Normally these tribes are separated by harsh conditions or treacherous roads or mountains and finally again, finally, we are together. Together, going up, going up Mount Zion to meet with God. Psalm 133 gives words to express that moment of jubilation, that moment of excitement. And there's actually something that's concealed a little bit behind the English translation of the first verse, especially in the CSB, which we read from this morning. The first verse reads how Delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. And the sense of what is concealed is kind of behind the meaning of those words. It's there, but maybe it lacks a little bit of the awe and wonder that I'm looking for in this moment. Another way to translate the original Hebrew word there at the very beginning of Psalm 133 is with a single word and an exclamation point after it. And that single word is behold. We sang that song today, behold him. Behold, look, study with your eyes, perceive with your mind, feel with your heart. What a sight to see. Or to translate into modern English, whoa, dude. Like, whoa, you've gotta see this, man. Sometimes in the word of God, we are given things to obey. And when we obey those things, we experience blessing in our life. But sometimes in the word of God, we are given things to simply behold. Simply look at. Simply look to study. Engage your mind. Engage your heart. Engage your spirit. And Psalm 133 begins there with, behold, how good, how delightfully good it is when brothers live together in harmony. When brothers live together in harmony. In uh, Charles Spurgeon's uh, Treasury of the Psalms commentary, he says, it is a wonder seldom seen, therefore behold it. It may be seen, for it is the characteristic of real saints for brothers to live together in harmony. Therefore, fail not to inspect it. It is well worthy of admiration. Pause, gaze upon it. It will charm you into imitation. Therefore, note it well, for God looks on it with approval. Therefore, consider it with great attention. Behold, when brothers live together in harmony. It is a sight to behold. We are going to dive into this Psalm 133 and we're gonna look at it under three points. The first point we're going to look at is the picture of unity. The picture of unity. How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. Some things are good. 
In fact, many things are good for you, right? A diet that consists of moderation and self-control, that's, that's good for you. Eating your vegetables, we're told, is good for you. It's good to exercise. It is good to limit your consumption of digital media, your TV, your smartphone, any screens you might be looking at. It is good to not lie to your loved ones, to put up a false front or face, to live a lie with those around you. It is, it is good to not murder, right? <laughs> We're all on the same page, right? There are many things that are good for us, that are right for our flourishing as humanity, but can we say that all of those good things are delightfully good? The psalmist begins by saying to you and I that brothers living together in harmony is both good, it's right, but it's also delightfully good. Another translation of that same verse says that it is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. And one pastor pointed out that goodness it being good implies that it ought to be. It ought to be. It is right. Whereas pleasant or delightfully good, delightful, implies what we want it to be. And Psalm 133 says that it's not only good, it ought to be. It also says it's something that we should want. We want it to be. Good is what God requires Delight is what we rejoice in. Good is our duty. Pleasant is our delight. And this is not just about being together when brothers dwell together in unity or harmony. Unity isn't the same as proximity. If I have any married people in the house, you know that unity isn't the same as proximity when your spouse rolls over in bed and gives you the cold shoulder. Refusing to talk or continuing the conversation, right? You know that just because you're near in the closest human relationship at the closest point, that that doesn't mean you're in unity or harmony necessarily. Unity isn't the same as proximity. What it is getting at, though, in Psalm 133 is the author is excited about the unity that these brothers have. And you have to have the whole loaded context of all the history of Israel, the law that was given, who these people are, the covenant, all packed into this statement. The author is excited for a unity of ultimate allegiance. A unity that finds its root in their allegiance to following God. These are God's people. Unity of devotion among God's devoted worshipers. Unity of passion. These are God chasers. And the migration of the tribe to Jerusalem isn't just some big family reunion. I don't know if you've been a part of a big family reunion yourself. Sometimes that can be good. Sometimes it can be a train wreck. And this Jerusalem journey isn't just a family reunion as you and I might think of it. But it is the devoted, the lovers of God, the God chasers, the ones who are hungry after God, coming on a long journey to meet together. And that's the unity the psalmist sees in mind. A unity of purpose, a unity of passion, a unifying point to come together around the worship of God. 
The author sees the sum total of the tribes is greater than the individual parts in their unity and purpose and devotion and passion. And he says, that's pleasant. That's delightfully good. But it is also more than just good and pleasant. It is also precious. Our next point is the preciousness of unity. It is like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robe. The preciousness of unity. The psalmist next makes a comparison. The harmony, the unity of brothers is like fine oil on the head. The word fine or precious is speaking of its unique composition and its unique purpose. This oil is something that was set apart and unique. We, we see this because the psalm makes reference to who? What's the name in there? Aaron, right? And who was Aaron? Anyone know? Moses' brother, he was also the first high priest, right? The first high priest of Israel. And it's almost like we're reimagining or revisiting that anointing of the high priest of Israel, Aaron, as the anointing oil comes over him. Aaron was anointed with oil when he was set apart for the ministry. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 22 through 33, we are told about the anointing oil that was actually used on Aaron, what it was made of. It was this rich, fragrant blend of spices. It was heavily perfumed oil. It was to be consecrated oil, meaning it was to be used only for a special purpose, only for a very special, holy purpose. Uh, In Exodus 20, verse 31, it says, tell the Israelites, This will be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It must not be used for ordinary anointing on a person's body. And you must not make anything like it using its formula. It is holy and it must be holy to you. Anyone who blends something like it or puts uh, puts some of it on an unauthorized person must be cut off from their people. This oil was special, it was precious, it was consecrated, and it was only for consecrating and setting apart the most holy things in service to God. And that included the articles in the the tabernacle in the temple, and that also included the servants who would go in, the high priest and his sons, Aaron. And we see in Psalm 133 that the kind of unity that is described in Psalm 133 is a kind that is like the high and holy anointing of the high priest for service before God and before man. That's what the psalmist likens it to. It's like that moment when that that priest is set apart for God's holy purpose. Now, I don't know if you've ever been anointed with oil. Nowadays, typically, if you're ever anointed for, for um, maybe you have a sickness or you want, you're being set apart for something or you're being commissioned to go do something, you might get anointed with oil. And it's usually out of a little vial and a little dab on the forehead, right? <laughs> and then you're good, right? You're anointed. Well, I, I remember one time I had an opportunity where I was being prayed for. 
Um, and I think the prayer was something along the lines of, hey, the Holy Spirit would use you and pour his anointing onto you so that you might be useful in the ministry in the future. I don't recall the exact nature of the prayer. I just remember people around me. And whatever the nature of it, it was about abundance and it was about overflow. And so whoever was praying got the idea that that meant they should pour the whole thing on my head. Now, if you've ever had any oil on your head, maybe you've put it in your hair or something, it, it gets in there, it's hard to get out, it begins to run down, it's in my eyes, it's on my mouth, it's going down my, you know, the back of my hair, it's on my collar, it's in, running down my back, I mean, it's everywhere, and you can't get away from it, and not only that, but this was special oil because they were trying to be, you know, like that original oil, they had mixed it up in a certain fragrant way, and so now, you, now I just, you know, I'm walking around like a walking, talking, you know, greasy garden. I smell like beautiful flowers <laughs> walking around the church afterward. You know, and, and afterward, obviously, you're going to be greeting people and welcoming people and, and saying hi to your friends and stuff. And you can imagine being uh, smelly and greasy. <laughs> I think that, that that's part, of, though, of the imagery here. Why else would the psalmist talk about not only it being poured on the head, but it running down and it running down further and, and to the robes? Part of the imagery that the psalmist is trying to convey is something about this overflowing abundance of oil over Aaron, the beard, the robe. It's not just precious in composition and purpose, but it's also in its abundant, life-giving, spirit-filling outcome. It's sanctifying. It's setting apart for something great, a great work of God, to do ministry for God, to minister to the Lord and to minister to people. The anointing oil is like life being poured out, and it's running down. It's running down. It's, maybe, you haven't, uh, maybe you haven't experienced the oil on the head, but have you ever had really good barbecue ribs? I know, they're similar, right? <laughs> you have great barbecue ribs. I remember when we first came here, getting taken out to a great barbecue place up the street that I, I, I remember all the time. Uh, Momo's, I think it is called. Right up the way, right? <laughs> and uh, getting some barbecue up there. And something about ribs, I just recently had them at Rayleigh's. And man, you dig in and they're amazing. And then pretty soon, five minutes later, you're like, they're... There's, there's sauce on my arm. Like, how did it get there? And then it's on your pants, and then it's, it's on the back of your head, and somehow it's on the steering wheel now, and you're like, this sauce is abundant and overflowing, and it's very, very messy. Messy good, right? It's good. Uh, there was, I remember back in the day, uh, Carl's Jr. had commercials about... Uh, I think they were trying to compete and they realized that they, they couldn't get their workers to make anything <laughs> without make, look, making it look sloppy and, and sauce everywhere. And so they just leaned into that and marketed it as like, man, if it doesn't get all over the place, it doesn't belong in your face, right? <laughs> Messy good in all the right ways, none of the bad ways, none of the barbecue sauce ways. The kind of unity that is being described in Psalm 133 is a kind of unity that is overflowing, that is, is kind of messy good. It's delightfully good and holy and precious. It's not ordinary or common. It's fragrant and sacred. It's precious. And that leads us to the final point, the provision of unity. 
We move to verse three, which begins, it's like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. And another thing might be missed here too in, uh, in our English translation, because there is a repeated phrase over and over again, and it actually begins in verse two, where it talks about the oil, and it says running down in CSB, but what it more literally means like coming down or going down, coming down, coming down on the beard, coming down on Aaron's beard, and then that phrase gets repeated again in verse three. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion, coming down. If something is coming down, where has it come from? Somewhere up, right? Mount Hermon, or Hermon, is in the northernmost parts of Israel at that time. Now it's a part of Lebanon and right on the border of Syria. It was the highest mountain in Israel at the time of Psalms. It was about 9,000 feet in, in stature. And it was well known in the area for its lush, green, and moisture. It was like dew that fell on Mount Hermon, it, it had something like over 60 inches of rainfall each year, a lush place. And from its streams and its tributaries, Mount Hermon feeds the headwaters that become the Jordan River. And the Jordan River makes its way down to the Sea of Galilee, and then it spills out of the Sea of Galilee and makes its way past Jerusalem and down to the Dead Sea. Psalm 133 says that unity of the people of God is like the life-giving moisture of Mount Hermon, but it's falling on the dry, dusty mountains of Zion. It's like the moisture, the life-giving water of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. The same mountain, Mount Zion, is the place where Aaron's offspring, the high priests, would minister before the Lord and they would act as mediators between God and his people. Unity is like life-giving dew falling there. Right, what, is, what does the scripture say? It says, it is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has appointed the blessing. There, Mount Zion, on Mount Zion the Lord has appointed the blessing. And it is like dew falling there because there on Mount Zion is the place where the restorative and atoning work takes place in the temple, in the tabernacle. The Lord has commanded his blessing where? Where he saves, where he covers, where he anoints. And he's commanded what blessing? Everlasting life. Or another translation says life forevermore. Or the literal uh, Hebrew says, life unto the eternity. How, how is it like this? How is it, what is the connection between this dew of Hermon and Mount Zion and the commanded blessing that God says is there? It is like that because the kind of unity that the psalmist has in mind the kind of unity that we have been exploring and extol the psalmist has been extolling and glorying and Remember, it began with behold. Behold this beautiful sight when brothers live together in harmony. That kind of unity is the fruit of that blessed everlasting life. 
In other words, the unity is not something that leads to everlasting life. It is something that is born out of everlasting life or the fruit of eternal life in us, the blessing that God has commanded, where heaven and earth meet through the mediator, through the mediator, at one time pictured as Aaron, only to be fulfilled in maximum view in Christ on Mount Zion. The life-giving dew would fall on Zion and from that life, a kind of unity that the world has never seen before. I don't know if you read Psalm 133 and you go, that's not how the world works. We might get along for a little while, but underneath we're really divisive and we're trying to tear things apart. What about a, that kind of unity? The scripture says that kind of unity that is delightful and good would come to Zion where God's commanded blessing of life eternal would come and from there that kind of unity would go out into the world like the world had never seen before so that we could behold it, so the world could behold that kind of unity. Aaron and his offspring served the Lord on Mount Zion making sacrifice and atoning for the sins of the people. But we also know that Aaron's priestly ministry eventually came to an end. We know that for all the goodness of the high priest's ministry, that no matter how many offerings were made, more was always required. We see that no matter how many unity movements rise up in this world, unified around some common goal, they are not sufficient and they crumble under the weight of sinful man who always seeks to undermine and elevate himself. This unity described in Psalm 133 is not possible by our own efforts, but it is a gift from God coming down, remember? Coming down on the head, down on the beard, coming down in Christ who came down to bring this gift. Listen to these words from the scripture. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priests do, first for their own sin and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Not only was this unity achieved in Christ, but he also accomplished another feat. Another feat that much of the New Testament glories in and finds great joy and satisfaction and glory in God. And that feat is this. He tore the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. He effectively kicked down the doors of hostility between them. And in doing so, Christ did something for unity that no one could ever do on earth. And that is he expanded or exploded the meaning of what brothers in unity could look like. Brothers in unity could include people from every 
nation, tribe, and tongue. And so, delightfully good is the unity we find in Christ. That he is said to be making out of the two, the Jew and the Gentile, those at odds, one new humanity. Out of the two, he's making one new humanity, ultimately unity and peace in his body. And that one new humanity, we've talked about this before, we've said it before many times from here, that one new humanity is the church. That one new humanity that God is creating out of the two, one in Christ is the church. It is all of those who have their hope exclusively found in Christ Jesus. They are the ultimate expression of the reality of this truth. Reality of this unity and this peace. You may not have been here at the very beginning when we read the scripture, Ephesians 2, as our call to worship, but I want you to listen to it now in light of Psalm 133 and in light of the provision of unity we have in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing line of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Where was the temple located? Mount Zion, Jerusalem. What is God building now? He's building one humanity out of the two in him that it might be grow up to be the new temple the church in Christ Jesus and a place where the spirit of God dwells, which anointing oil always represented the spirit or the presence of God. How delightfully good when brothers and sisters live together as one new humanity in Christ. That is the fulfillment of Psalm 133. How good, how delightfully good when brothers and sisters live together as one new humanity 
in Christ. God's people in God's place under God's rule. A kingdom of priests to our God.